Welcome to a special edition of Legal AF. I'm Karen Friedman Agnifilo, and I'm joined today by the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who's just finished his first year as the new Manhattan DA. And boy, did he end it with a huge victory. 17 felony convictions against the Trump Corporation and their payroll company, both of which were sentenced this morning to a financial penalty of 1.6 million, which is the maximum allowable sentence under the law. And earlier this week, Trump's chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, was also sentenced for his convictions of 15 felonies. These are the first criminal convictions in the Trump orbit, and kudos to you, D.A. Bragg, for getting this done. As a quick reminder to our viewers and listeners, I worked at the Manhattan DA's office for almost three decades, and I was the number two under D.A. Bragg's predecessor, Cy Vance. But I myself have never worked with you, uh, but I am so honored to have you here today since uh, you've been carrying on the excellent traditions of the Manhattan DA's office, an office I love. And you're ending your first year on a very, very high note. So welcome and thank you for taking the time to join me today. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I, I appreciate it. Uh, love uh, talking with you always. So happy to now be doing it on the podcast. And, you know, you know better than anyone that uh, the, the week, and I thank you for the, the kind words, uh, is really just a continuation of, uh, of the fine tradition here of being at the Vanguard and I remember when I started out as a, uh, a, a, a young associate um, at a litigation boutique focused on uh, white collar prosecutions in the early 2000s. Uh, and this office was bringing, uh, you know, a seismic white collar case after white collar case. And uh, the, the I think most famous occupant of the seat, Mr. Morgenthau, uh, you know, saying uh, that we uh, enforce the law from the streets to the suites. So um, I'm honored and humbled to be uh, building on the work that you've done and look forward to talking to you about it. So congratulations on today's sentencing of the of the Trump Corporation. Tell us about th- this case, these convictions, Alan Weisselberg. We want to hear all about it from your perspective. Look, it, it, it was, I, I love trials. Uh, you, you know, it's, it is to me like kind of, you know, one of the key heartbeats of our democracy. You know, you take uh, some, some folks uh, off the street and put them in the box, as we say, and then they get to see and hear the evidence and they got to hear about, you know, 13 years of of tax fraud, of of money that should go to the public fist, lying, greed, all sorts of things like fancy cars and um, uh, having executives uh, getting um, monies uh, paid off uh, uh, that didn't weren't reflected on their taxes. And so it, it, it is the kind of hallmarks of a classic white collar prosecution, but obviously against the backdrop of, uh, you know, a namesake corporation for a former president. So it took on, um, you know, additional consequence. But fundamentally, greed, fraud, lies, that's what white collar prosecutions come down to. That's for sure. And the sentences that were handed down today was a total or an aggregate of about 1.6 million. Are you satisfied with that, with those sentences? We, you know, we wish we could get more under the law. We've, we've started having a conversation with our partners in Albany. Uh, you, you know you were a part of, of, of pushing for Carlos's law, which is a law that recently was signed by the governor that uh, heightens the penalties for uh, workplace injuries and fatalities, uh, a law that we, we support. We, ha- we can't have malfeasance, uh, corporate malfeasance is significant uh, in any way particularly kind of systemic fraud that doesn't uh, really get dealt with uh, vigorously. 
Otherwise, the, 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 the corporations will just price it in. It becomes a, a way of doing business. So we definitely want the law to change. I do think here that the marketplace will speak, uh, that a criminal conviction certainly uh, will have a significant chilling effect. I know from my, my work as a public integrity prosecutor on bidding for public contracts, I think banks and others will think twice about extending credit and entering agreements with these convicted corporations. So uh, encourage that there is some accountability, but wish that there would be more and we'll push that uh, for going forward. We'll get, get, get more penalties in these kind of cases. Is that the part of the law that you think needs to change that uh, higher penalties for corporate malfeasance for corporate crimes? I think so. And, you know, we, you know, we want to be, you know, th- you know, thoughtful before kind of just adding to the, to the, the, the penal law. Uh, but I do think this is a, a, a real hole uh, that, uh, you know, corporate actors, you can't, you can't jail the corporation. Uh, and, and obviously for a human being, the restriction of liberty is, is, is something that, uh, you know, most people are going to think twice before uh, uh, committing a crime like this. But, but I would say for this kind of, you know, more than a decade, senior level, the highest levels of a corporation, systemic fraud, uh, that having penalties that deter that will be good for all the other businesses that are following the law and for uh, the rest of our uh, taxpayers who are paying in. You know, Judge uh, Mershon, who I know you you know and probably have appeared in front of, who, who, who presided over this trial at the sentencing of Alan Weisselberg, really focused in on uh, some monies that uh, went to allowing his wife to be eligible uh, for Social Security and said, you know, this is pure greed. Uh, and, and what about this program uh, that so many others uh, actually need and are, are legitimately eligible for? Or Medicare, which was part of the sentencing today when we talked about, uh, um, you know, how Medicare was, was, was built. So these are important government programs, and we really need to send a strong message uh, that, that we won't countenance this. There are people who are asking why Alan Weisselberg, uh, the CFO, only got five months and why your office and you agreed to that plea deal with him. Can you explain your perspective on this? I mean, to me, five months for a 75-year-old or truthfully for anyone for that matter at the notorious Rikers Island, which to be clear, is so bad, should be closed, in my opinion. Uh, it's not a walk in the park, especially if you're 75 years old, but, but there are people who've said that's not enough time. Right. And, you know, you, you, unlike others, like know it so well, right? You know the conditions at Rikers and you know what, what a case like this. So, uh, you know, you mentioned his age, also the, the nature of the crime, right? So uh, a, a first time uh, conviction for a you know, white collar crime, a tax crime, which certainly thought was serious and warranted prosecution. Uh, but you know, when you look at other cases like this, it is a, it is a, uh, a, a, a punishment that we think uh, uh, was warranted and fits. And as you know, and this is a hallmark of white collar prosecutions, the importance of a narrator, the importance of someone who was on the inside. And so we, we, we felt that um, in order to get his testimony about the inner workings of the Trump organization, and it's just a centerpiece of the trial. Like I said, I love trials. You know, his testimony, which spread over three days with him talking in detail about what he did, why he did it, um, uh, his ongoing relationship with the Trump organization, which I think raised a lot of eyebrows on the jury. I, I think that testimony was invaluable. And, you know, in these kind of cases, uh, you know, it's called for sometimes you've you got to make agreements with people who are complicit. They're the ones who know 
Uh, and so it's not it's something that we would do again. We felt that it was worthwhile so that we could prove the case against the Trump organization and get accountability for him. Like you said, five months on Rikers is, is significant. Did the fact that he did not, that Mr. Weisselberg did not cooperate against Trump, in other words, didn't implicate him, uh, does that affect any ongoing investigations or anything else, given his testimony with regard to that? So, for example, did he say anything on direct or cross at trial that Trump was not involved or in charge or anything that could hurt either your or someone else's abilities, another prosecutor's ability to potentially prosecute Donald Trump or hold him accountable for some of these actions? Certainly the defense, you know, tried to pull out some threads uh, to suggest that uh, Donald Trump was, uh, you, know, you know, nowhere around and that Mr. Weisselberg was completely rogue. Uh, you know, the jury rejected that as part of finding the corporate liability. They, they have to find that the, the benefits to Mr. Weisselberg, these tax benefits, also were on behalf of the corporation. Uh, so we thought it was his testimony uh, you know, advance the case that was before, you know, before the court. Uh, you know, certainly, as we've said, we are looking at other pieces and, and obviously in Georgia and the special counsel on the federal level, also a Manhattan district attorney le uh, alum leading that work. Um, those, I think, all stand, you know, kind of on their own terms. Uh, certainly, you know, ours is, you know, other conduct in Georgia is strictly distinct from what we're looking at. Uh, so I think that the testimony advanced the, uh, the, the, the objective at hand, which was the the corporation convictions and really made the point that the misconduct was on behalf of the corporation. The corporation benefited. Wait, you were referring to the Manhattan DA alum, uh, special counsel, you mean Jack Smith. He, he and I actually were in the same very small bureau together and worked together in the early 90s. So It's a, it's a fine tradition. He, he, he's, yeah. he, he's, he's gone from the streets to the suites to like the inter international streets. Yeah, exactly. He sure has. So. In addition, Alan Weisselberg also, uh, he also had to cough up a couple million dollars too, correct? Exactly. So we thought that was important, you know, of, of the financial, it's, you know, ultimately a, a financial crime and, and that, uh, you know, the, the, to pay back that money uh, to the, 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 you know, it doesn't it doesn't undo the crime. It doesn't put the toothpaste back in the tube, uh, but certainly is important uh, part of uh, accountability. So what do you say about to people who say, well, one one point six million is nothing to an entity such as the Trump organization? And correct me if I'm wrong. The Trump organization is the big umbrella corporation and under it are hundreds of smaller corporations, the Trump Corporation and the Payroll Corporation, the two that you convicted, those are under this big umbrella Trump organization. And and there are people saying that 1.6 million is nothing to them. They That's, you know, a rounding error, if you will. And so how is that going to prevent not only others and deter others from committing this kind of fraud? Won't the Trump Organization, for example, just close up the two convicted businesses and open up two more or fold the duties into one of their other ones and just walk away and, and call this yet another loss that he can claim on his tax returns and not pay income tax? <laughs> I, look, I think those are all you know, significant points. The, the, the high profile nature of this, I think, makes it difficult to, to, to run away from it. So it's something I think the marketplace will know. Uh, and the collateral consequences um, you know, certainly, you know, when you're filling out, for example, you know, you know, a public bid and they've got some public contracts. I think this is the kind of kind of even if you reorganize the kind of uh, conviction that would need to be disclosed. Uh, so I think it'll be hard for them to distance themselves from this from this conviction. 
but the, the, your points are well taken, which is why we think we need uh, stiffer penalties for this kind of, uh, you know, ongoing, you know, you know, pervasive fraud uh, by a corporation. Yeah, I agree with you. The penalties need to be significant enough so that it doesn't just this doesn't just get built into the cost of doing business for for companies, right? That that will really be a deterrent. Exactly. These are just astounding, significant uh, victories, in my opinion. What does this mean to the office and to your administration? You know, and I think you'll appreciate this, you know, more than than almost anyone else. I, you know, what I think it, it means for the office is is a another opportunity in the long history of the office for the public, and we work for the public. We stand up and say, uh, you know, we represent the people of the state of New York. For the people of the state of New York to get to see Susan Hoffinger, uh, Joshua Steinglass, who I know you work with and, and, and oversaw his work, uh, and, and uh, the others who worked on this case, to get to see the rigor, the professionalism, the integrity that we stand at the ready. I think it's really good for the, the public who we serve to see that. And I think, uh, you know, it's good for the office. Uh, it sends a message to the defense bar, or, you know, to potential wrongdoers uh, that we stand at the ready and are prepared. I think it's always good to show the trial readiness of any office. And um, I'm just really, really proud to be a part of the tradition, proud of our, um, and I, I, I've talked a lot about the prosecutors, you know, our analysts, you know, the role that the analysts, you know, you, know, you play, uh, paralegals, just putting it together. It's a full team effort. And so I think it's great for other parts of the team to get to see the work uh, that we're doing. The, the only thing, as I say that, that I would hasten to add is, you know, this this trial got a lot of attention, as I, as I think was warranted. Uh, but as you know, you know, the number of trials that ha happened in the courthouse during this one uh, were a, a large number, and they're all important, all important, you know, to, to the victims and the survivors. And the same level of rigor and professionalism goes into each and every one of them. So I, I want the public to know that as well. And I think that's an excellent point. And, and you're right. I used to get frustrated that, you know, you'd only hear about certain high profile cases when there were other very, very, very serious, complicated cases going on at the same time with also excellent work. And, and the office does a lot of that. Um, speaking of Susan Hoffinger and Josh Steinglass, so you were handed this case when you were when you took office. It was already indicted under the previous administration. But you're the one who chose who was going to staff the case, right? Who's going to try the case. And you put Susan Hoffinger, the chief of your investigation division, who has both substantial prosecution and defense, criminal defense experience. And she has a reputation of being an excellent trial attorney. And, and I thought that was an excellent choice. But really interestingly, what you also did was you staffed it with Josh Steinglass, who, as you said, I've worked with for many years. He, to me, was an interesting choice because he's mostly known as a violent crime prosecutor. You know, he's he's your stable of, of thoroughbred racehorses, you know, as a senior trial counsel, which which is sort of, in my opinion, the most elite role at the Manhattan DA's office and, and has a lot of experience. But but that was really uh, I, I think that showed a lot of um foresight for, on your part to staff it with those two as a pair. And I know there were others on the team as well. Tell us what went into this trial strategy and staffing of the case in, in this manner. I was so happy and it, it's, it's great to see, you know, they did not know each other really well before. And you know how these things work on trial teams. Uh, you know, now they're fast friends and you see the dynamic and the pairing ended up being phenomenal. Uh, you know, it Susan. could go either way, by the way. You're either best <laughs> friends at the end of the trial or the opposite. <laughs> I'm good friends with all my trial partners. <laughs> 
Uh, sometimes in the middle of trial, you know, it gets a little tense. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you could just see that the, the, they really had a real chemistry. Uh, and I think they complemented well one another. Uh, what I was thinking about when we put the team together was, you know, when I recruited Susan to the office, I knew her by reputation. We hadn't worked together, but I knew the trial reputation uh, and building complex cases. And so I thought uh, that having her on, uh, someone who's been a part of high-profile white-collar trials before would be important. And then when we started thinking about the pairings, I'm, I'm, I'm a generalist, right? I've, I've, I've done you know, federal prosecution, state prosecution, you know, civil, criminal, white-collar, street crimes. Uh, and, and so I, uh, I, I've done a, in a lot of my sort of management, particularly at the New York Attorney General's office, a lot of cross-staffing. And I've found that when you bring someone in from a different area, they just see linkages and make connections that someone who may, may be steeped in that area doesn't. So it was important to me that you know, he didn't come in as a tax expert. His expertise is speaking to Manhattan jurors. Um, he does that. He does that phenomenally well. As you said, all of our senior trial counsel, uh, you know, I'm, I'm new here. One thing I've learned this year uh, is, is just that role. All of those folks are so dynamic and so good. And in some ways, it was really important that he hadn't worked. He wasn't a tax expert. What he's an expert in is explaining things to juries. Right. So, you know, this tax stuff could be mystifying and, uh, you know, could be intimidating to a jury. So. I thought the pairing of someone who's done a lot of white collar work was great on our, on our feet with someone who, as you say, is most known for uh, his 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 street crime trial work. But bringing that narrative and that storytelling and, you know, if you'll indulge me, I just I can have, have this written down. I thought he had a great line in his closing, which he repeated in the sentencing today. He said that the scheme was far reaching and brazen. It was deep, wide and long. And, you know. As a, as, a, as a trial lawyer, I love threes. There's some research on saying things in threes. So it's a deep in terms of the robust array of the practices, wide in terms of the number of beneficiaries, and long in terms of its duration. I mean, that's the kind of stuff like you know that sticks in a in a, in a juror's brain uh, and brings it to life. It's not a tax case about you know the IRS code and the state tax code. No, it's a case about greed and lies, and it's it's. It's deep, it's wide, and it's long, and that's uh, I, I think the beauty of of having Josh on the team, and and so we were really, really, really happy about that pairing. Great. Well, I, I think it was great. I thought it was brilliant. One last question about the case, and then I want to pivot. Um, so these convictions, to be clear, are for state and city tax violations, correct? Right. So does that mean Weisselberg and the Trump Corporation still have potential federal liability? with respect to the conduct that came out at trial? And do you know whether there's an active federal investigation into this? I don't know. I don't know. You know, we, we focused on, you know, just sort of the charges that we had jurisdiction for. Um, you know, I, I don't know. My sense just, you know, I don't want to speak for the federal government. My sense is that probably this will be the last word in terms of a criminal prosecution given the outcome here. Um, but that's just speculation. So just pivoting now to the broader Trumps and Trump investigations, uh, we know it's been widely reported that there's at least one, possibly more than one, open and active criminal investigations still ongoing in your office. And, and you've spoken openly and, and made the comment that there are ongoing investigations with respect to the Trumps as individuals. So I'm not going to ask you specifically about them. 
And many people don't understand why that is, but you really can't talk about an ongoing investigation. And you're not alone in that. Prosecutors, all prosecutors generally don't do this ever, not just you. It's the very rare time that they have to. And I would love if you could explain why this is so, whether you're Jack Smith, whether you're Alvin Bragg, whether you're Cy Vance, Robert Morgenthau, or every other prosecutor across this country, uh, why it is so important to allow criminal investigations to go on and go on not necessarily in full view of the public. I'm so happy you asked me that question. You know, this is something that you know has, has been on my mind a lot this year. You know, we've got you know a, you know cases you know we've worked on throughout our careers. Some of them get media attention, some of them don't. Obviously, the intention on this is 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 um, uh, a lot, uh, but it's the same principles that apply. Um, and and you, you said and I would add another name to that list. Judge Garland, uh, you know, has been been also you know dealing with the issue of when to speak and how to how much to speak. And we obviously want the, the the public to have confidence in the administration of justice. And sometimes being quiet means that false narratives um, abound uh, and it can be difficult. I found that to be challenging, but it's but it's remarkable when we speak prior uh, to the closing of a proceeding outside of court. So when we issued the statement uh, last year that the investigation was ongoing, that that was a lot of introspection and thought because even that statement uh, was remarkable and, and something that we, we would not normally do. Uh, and it's to protect the integrity of the investigation, as you, as you know. Um, you know, first and foremost, there's privacy interests and liberty interests uh, for uh, the people who are under investigation, for potential witnesses. That's why we have, uh, in part, you know, grand jury secrecies. So people will be able to come forward uh, uh, and it won't be public. And so they'll, they'll share uh, and testify truthfully. Uh, we also don't want to have the you know public discussion about what a witness is, says. And one, we have those privacy interests. Two, that might muddy the recollection of another witness. Uh, and so we have you know really strong privacy, confidentiality, uh, you know hallmarks. And this is not something that you know just reasonable minds have come up with, right? These principles are embedded in the code of professional responsibility, which. You know, govern you know all um, all New York lawyers and their analogous codes you know, you know throughout the throughout the country. So there are really really strong principles that we abide by in every case. But in a high profile case, it, it means that sometimes the silence comes at the expense of other narratives uh, getting out there. And then we got to ask ourselves the tough question: you know, when to speak? You know, uh, to correct the record, whether we should, and to be very very careful and judicious about it. Uh, and here. We had sort of an additional complication in that we had this trial. So we have the, the investigation that's ongoing that we're not you know, talking about. Um, and if we even found our way to saying we should maybe say something uh, and there's something permissible we could say, we then would have to think about, well, are we going to prejudice this trial? Are we going to, um, um, uh, is it going to lead to some sort of a mistrial motion? Because uh, the impact it would have on the jurors, and so you know that 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 underpins a lot of uh, a lot of this thinking too is you know pretrial publicity and, and the effect on a, on a potential jury pool uh, should a case be brought. I'm glad you mentioned Merrick Garland, but it was Bill Barr, is all the U.S. attorneys that were appointed under Trump. I mean, this is not a Democrat or Republican thing. This is prosecutors, 
and politics do not belong in prosecution. You know, everybody who's ever prosecuted a case says that as well. Um, so, but you do have active ongoing investigations, correct? Yes, yes, we do. And are these joint with the attorney general's office, the New York attorney general's office, or is it just your office or can you not say? So you know, we, we've been working, the attorney general's been a, you know, been a, been a, been a partner, uh, 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 Gary Fishman, who's a special ADA uh, on the trial that was just concluded, was with us today. Um, Jennifer Levy, who's the first, uh, first deputy um, uh, at the New York attorney general's office, joined us for the press conference. So it's a strong uh, you know, partnership and, um, you know, one that, one that, one that continues you know, beyond this case. So the Trump organization this morning after this conviction, uh, or after I should say the sentencing, called the prosecution politically motivated and said that you would stop at nothing to get President Trump. What do you have to say about that? Because in fact, you were actually handed another case that was widely reported uh, that some people thought was ready to go into the grand jury when you first became DA in January against Donald Trump, but you've slowed that down and, and put the brakes on that early on. Uh, so, you know, if you were politically motivated, uh, you would have just brought that case, you know, but, but I have to say, you're not only just bringing cases, you know, you're bringing cases without fear or favor and, and waiting until you can prove them beyond a reasonable doubt. So, you know, I just wanted to, to kind of point that out because I was, I was really, uh, irritated by that statement. I'm sure you were too, um, but uh, but but you've widely said that that case is is still open too. Is that correct? Yes, and look, I appreciate it. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I think the, the former president is no longer on Twitter. If I'm right, so I don't know how how, how the statement was released. Uh, I, I do not, uh, you know, uh, follow or put much stock in those in those words. You know, we are we are doing you know what you and I have done for. You know, together, probably what you know, 40, 50 years, uh, which is the tradition of the office and prosecutors everywhere, which is you know, following the facts and applying it to the evidence. Uh, you know, sometimes that means that there's a, a, a you know conclusion that the public loves, um, and uh, you know, so be it. You know, sometimes there's a conclusion that the public doesn't like. Um, you know, so be it. We've got to do our job, uh, and I think the the confidence in this is something that you know, I think across the board, not just in the white collar space, but more generally. Sort of confidence in the system um, is something that I view is really, really part of my job to keep a focus on, you know, particularly at this time of, um, you know, and some could trace it back to Watergate. I mean, there's obviously a lot of, you know, scholarly literature on this, but sort of declining faith in various institutions, including government and including particular, uh, you know, prosecutors. I spent a lot of my career doing public corruption prosecutions and, you know, kind of Defense 101 in those cases is to say, you know, it's politically motivated. And, and I would always point out that people have you know, prosecuted people of both parties, sometimes in the, in the very same case. And you just go where the facts take you uh, and do it with rigor and professionalism. Uh, and what I've learned in this new seat is that, um, you know, you do have to sometimes point out what you just said, which is explain and give some context when you can permissibly do it. But you know, end of the day, we'll just we'll keep on following the facts uh, and doing uh, the work that's been done here for generations and the work that's being you know, happened, as you point out, prosecutors offices. Uh, and, and I think ultimately, you know, the work in the courtroom speaks for itself. One last question um, before I ask you any last thoughts you want to share. Um, the Stormy Daniels hush payments investigation uh, 
in my calculation, the statute of limitations on that is going to run at some point this year. So we should know one way or another whether or not there's going to be a case if it ends with a prosecution, for example. But if it ends without a prosecution because you just don't have enough to charge that, is that something you think you'll communicate publicly about? So, so, so we've said in, 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 um, in our statement in April that we will communicate uh, our conclusion and you know, if it's an ind indictment in a matter, then that obviously will speak for itself. And if we don't, uh, then we'll communicate it. And as we've been talking, you know, that is um, uh, that is in and of itself, I think, um, you know, not something that prosecutors have traditionally done. Uh, we did it in, in, in certain types of cases at the attorney general's office. I think we see sort of over time um, uh, more and more. There's some really good for the for the for the wonkier parts of the audience. There's some really good scholarship in this case. Jessica Roth at, at Cardozo, who was a uh, alum of my old office, Southern District. Uh, Becky Royfe, who's a professor at New York Law. Uh, of the Manhattan DA's office have, you know, kind of written about and talked about when prosecutors should talk others in this space to Ruth Green and Fordham. It's a really rich area, um, you know, as you know, um, you know, with, with our good friend, um, uh, uh, the dean of New York Law School, I spent some time there. And so this is an issue that's really rich. Um, and, and I think about really trying to apply those theoretical principles um, in, in practice here. But yeah, we're committed to um, speaking uh, and letting the public know uh, at, at, at you know at the appropriate time, and if it's by way of indictment, then that will document will speak, and if it's not, then we will, uh, we, will, we, will we will articulate our conclusion and our basis for it um, in a statement. Well, I promised the press office that I wouldn't keep you too long, and so I want to keep that promise so that hopefully they'll let you come on the show again in the future. Are there any last thoughts you want to share before we end and say goodbye? No, it's just great talking with you, and and I and I and I and I love uh, uh, the 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 podcast. I love this conversation, and looking forward to coming back on again. And, and thank you for um, you know your your work. I love the things you're doing now, but uh, uh, in my mind, you're still a public servant. Uh, and thank you for um, you know, talk a bit about the history of the office. And so thank you for being an important part of that important part of that history. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you really, more importantly, for the incredible work you're doing, both for uh, New Yorkers, but as well as the American people. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you.